are my two things. I'll let you go ahead and introduce yourself. I know you have a great background in terms of tech, McMaster University, and then Stanford, and then we can get into, into the questions. Cool. Well, uh, hey, everyone. It's great to meet you all. Uh, my name is uh, Ali. I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Tonal. Uh, we make that machine behind me, which is uh, a weightlifting machine uh, for the home. It's the world's first digital strength training system with a personal trainer uh, built right in, all driven by AI, so you can get your most personalized workout. Uh, it's incredibly cool. Uh, we have dozens and dozens of professional athletes who invested in the company. Every one of them invested after they used the product. They literally used it and looked at me and said, can I put money into the company? <laughs> Uh, so it's it's something where you know everyone who who's touched it uh, has just has just grown incredibly passionate about it. Um, my background's in technology. I uh, I started my career uh, designing supercomputers for Hewlett Packard. Um, I have two degrees. I went to Stanford University for my master's degree and McMaster University for my computer engineering degree. Uh, but I uh, I never ever imagined that one day I'd become the fitness of uh, the CEO of a fitness company. I always thought I'd I'd stay in pure hardcore technology my entire career and. At some point, I got really, really passionate uh, about fitness and uh, and brought technology into fitness, and that's why I'm here. Love it, love it. And is, is that the office or is that a virtual background? Uh, this is this is a virtual uh, a virtual okay. background. Okay. Um, the the photo behind me is from our showroom in New York, uh, but you know what I found uh, is is my job is essentially I'm on Zoom twelve hours a day. Um, broadcasting. Sometimes I'm on live TV. Sometimes I'm broadcasting to hundreds of people on the team. And so eventually, this you know, my my office at home turned into a proper studio. Um, I have studio mics, studio lights, green screens. Um, so it's a it's a pretty uh, it's a pretty sophisticated setup. I love it. Love it. We gotta we gotta get a tonal podcast going. But first first question for you is just in terms of like I really want to know what inspired you. To really start tonal so i know that, that you struggled with weight as a child and as you started training once you got older there were a couple of different complications in terms of just the time and the lack of efficiency but what was the exact moment where you really realized that this was a product that needed to be brought to the world and just come to fruition for everyone to use yeah so um i'd say i'd say a few things uh, the, the fir first thing i want you to remember uh is uh they you know this is old old saying we've all heard uh need is the mother of invention right uh, and I think one of the most fundamental things, pieces of advice I can give to any entrepreneur um, is go invent things that people need. Um, don't invent things and then try to figure out who needs them, right? And I think a lot of, a lot of people um, will come up with great ideas like, oh, wow, I could do this. And, and the next question is, well, how is that useful? Who needs it? And how is that going to help people? And you're kind of going about it backwards. And, and so uh, one of our core core pillars at, at Tonal is innovation and creativity, but the, the subtext is with purpose. Um, you, you gotta, you gotta know the purpose. So, you know, you go back to, you know, to the purpose. Well, you look at me, I've been in technology my entire career and I've worked for startups almost my entire career. For the first two years, I worked for Hewlett Packard, uh, which was, you know, a company with a hundred thousand employees, so it was a massive organization. I was just, you know, first, first person out of school, like out of school, first job, I'm like, I'm like this little like cog in this massive, massive machine. Uh, and two years later, uh, I went and joined a startup where I was literally the first employee. So it was, it was the, you know, the three co-founders of the company. And then I join, I get there. Uh, and on day one, they have no phones, no computers. And they send me to like Best Buy to go buy phones and computers and start figuring out how we're going to, you know, get employees to start working. And and from there, you know, startup after startup is startup eventually found a company called Panologic, um, which, you know, ended up not doing so well. 
Um, but I learned, I learned a ton. And so, you know, I, 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 I'm steeped in, in the world of entrepreneurship, startups, technology. Uh, and then by the time I'm 35 years old, uh, I'm, you know, good at, I'm good at all these things, but my health is a complete disaster. Uh, and it had been my entire life. I was literally like the chubby seven-year-old kid with glasses who could code, like that stereotype of like, you know, overweight kid, glasses on his computer, like that you might imagine from the 80s and 90s. That was literally, literally me. So I'm 35. My health is a complete disaster. I have type 2 diabetes. I have sleep apnea. Uh, and, and I just decided that, that it wasn't worth sacrificing my health, right? I was having fun, but it wasn't worth sacrificing my health. So I quit my job and I, I focused on getting healthy. And I kind of put all that, that same passion that I have um, that goes into, into the technology. I put that passion into, into health. I lost 70 pounds uh, in the course of about about nine months, and um, you know, and I got you know I got passionate about nutrition and cardio and strength, uh, and and I remember you know I eventually got to the point where I had this like really really optimal routine where I would go to the gym, do a strength training routine at like 5 a.m. in the morning, um, and I was sitting on a bench at the gym one day, and I was thinking to myself, well. I have the luxury of being able to come here every morning and, and I have the luxury of, of basically not having a really, really demanding full-time job, but I knew that wasn't sustainable. I knew that it, I was eventually going to have to have a really demanding job and, and a family and kids. And, you know, guess what? I have a kid now. He wakes me up every day at 5 a.m. in the morning. I don't get to work out at 5 a.m. Uh, and so I, I knew life was going to get really, really demanding. And, and I was asking myself, well, I can't keep coming to the gym every day at 5 a.m. in the morning. Like, that's just not not convenient. I wish I could exercise at home. Uh, and I realized that the reason why all this strength training equipment at the gym was so big was because it relies on big metal plates and gravity. Like that's archaic technology. Like we went, we used to like lift rocks and, and logs. Like that's literally how people used to strength train, you know, a hundred years ago. And then eventually we started like using metal plates and eventually we started coating them in rubber. So you go to the gym today, most of those metal plates are coated in like colorful rubber, right? And if you've closed your eyes, you can imagine what I'm talking about. Um, but but the bulk never away, went away. The size never went away. And and I knew that if I could create a strength training machine that just ran on electricity, I could shrink it down and make it really smart all at the same time. Uh, and and by the end of that workout, I decided that I was going to go do this. And I went home and ordered some parts. And that was six years ago. I love it. So instant idea. And then just, just started the building process. I think one one of the biggest things that I took away from that was just really the importance of health and what that prioritization looks like. So I have burnt out a couple of times. It's like this constant cycle of going through and, and never recognizing what health actually means. And so I love that, that you just bring that to fruition and prioritize it now. One of the other things that I think you mentioned was identifying need and inventing something to fill that need. Was it just personal need? You knew that this was something that was going to be successful. Did you go out and talk to other people and ask them if you would see if they would use a similar device? Like, what did that, I guess, customer user process look like? Oh, that that took months, right? So, um, so here's here's the thing about uh, about building a company, right? Uh, is in order for for a company to succeed, you have to you have to solve a lot of problems along the way, and it, and it, and if you define solving a problem as eliminating a risk, right? So. You sit there on day one and like, what are your risks, right? First risk, um, you can't create a weight machine that runs on electricity, right? Like second risk, you know, no one wants to buy it, right? Third, and you, you know, you go through your risks and, and effectively what you want to do is you want to start with the biggest risks, the biggest unknowns and start working working on those first. Um, and, you know, and the big ones were, were A, you're, I was never gonna be able to get an electronic strength, strength, you know, lifting machine to work. 
um, that I was never gonna get the core like electromagnetic technology to work. And the second risk was exactly what you were saying, Zane, no, no one was gonna buy it. Um, and, and part of answering the question of, no, is someone gonna buy it is what's the channel? How are you selling it? Uh, are you selling it direct to consumers and they're gonna put it in their homes? Um, which is what I really wanted. But I also have to ask myself the question, am I better off also selling this directly to gyms and putting it in gyms? Uh, and so I actually spent, you know, in, while I was like working on the technology, um, I spent about six months doing market research. And, you know, you pull existing research studies on the market, um, you're pulling statistics, reports, you're running surveys, you're talking to people, um, and you're trying to find out that if it's real. But I was also investigating all the other potential go-to-market strategies. Like what if selling to people's homes was step two, but step one was selling to gyms? So I actually talked to, to gym owners. Uh, I talked to gym managers. I talked to personal trainers. Um, I talked to um, the, the person who literally built every 24-hour fitness and every crunch fitness in the country. Um, and uh, I still joke about it with this guy until this day, but he basically kicked me out of his office in a very friendly way. He said, Ali, I love what you're working on. Please don't sell it to me. Please go sell it to consumers. Uh, and you'll do much, much better than trying to sell to gyms. I love your product. I don't want you to waste your time trying to sell it to gyms. Please get out of my office. Like that's literally what he said to me. Um, and it was the best piece of advice anyone ever gave me. I love it. So, so active, active buy-in based on, on, on consumer strategy. And so was there a prototype or mock-up that you showed people or was it just talking about the idea and then they started to just internalize what that looked like? Oh, there, there were, there were lots of, lots of prototypes along the way. Um, I think, you know, there, there's a, there's a balancing act, but you, you don't show the prototypes to everyone. You show the prototypes only to, to some people. Um, you know, you're showing to them with purpose, right? You're trying to validate something. Um, is this, you know, is this going to work or you're trying to prove to them that it's going to work because you want them to invest in the company or you're trying to get their feedback on the prototype to make sure that it's, it's valid. Um, and so in some cases you're showing to people in other cases, you know, you, you actually don't need to show it to them or don't want to show it to them. You just want to interview them and learn more about them. Uh, so, you know, for example, right, one of the risks was there's a group of people actually love going to the gym. And the question is, are you are you going to change your habits and start working out at home? Uh, and so you start, you know, you go and you interview people and you're doing you're doing what's um, you're, you're basically saying, like, hey, what's your day like? You know what? Tell me about your fitness routine. How often do you go to the gym? Do you like going to the gym? If you had the option to work out at home, would you? And so none of that has to do with digital weight. That has to do with like the habits that they have, because changing people's habits is, is, is really hard. But then there's a whole nother group of people where, you know, they're like, I love, I love my weights. And you're like, well, if I gave you something else, would you use it? It's kind of like asking people, would you give up your combustion engine and use an electric engine instead? Right. For a long, long time, people said no to that. And Tesla had to like reprogram the world to start to actually realize that electric engines were superior to combustion engines. But when I was growing up, that was not the perception. The perception was that the electric engine was a lesser than alternative for the environmental nuts. If you were, if you cared about the environment, you're gonna compromise and get an electric engine. Everyone else was gonna drive drive regular cars. And guess what? The world's completely changed now, right? So I knew that that was like, that was something I was gonna have to get over. So these are all the questions you're at, trying to answer and you're talking to people trying to, to find out like, is there a path forward or am I gonna hit one roadblock after roadblock after roadblock, right? Uh, and, and if you have too many roadblocks, um, it may not be the best business. You might consider like a slightly different business or a completely different business. What were those proxies when you were taking a look at, I guess, where this, where this might fail, where it, it, it reaches the point of stagnancy? Like what was, what was the point for you where you were going to say, I'm not going to move forward with this product if X person says no? 
Um, it, it was ne- it was never that simple, right? At, at the end of the day, like I joke with my team um, all day long that that as CEO, it's my job to make to make decisions without data, <laughs> right? Like like we we love we love to be immersed in data and we love to drown in data. And I train my team to make decisions without data. But but guess what? At the end of the day, when a decision has to be made and the data can't be gotten. Um, guess who's guess who's the only person left in the room who has to make that call? It's me, right? And so, so you, it's not, you're never going to have perfect perfect data, but but effectively, you know, you're looking at a proxy. Like there was a company a few years ahead of me called Peloton, which many of you many of you know, I'm sure. Um, and their their success was was a proxy that okay, they're being successful in cardio. That proves to me that there may be an opportunity to do something like this with strength training. Um, Tesla was a huge one because the ability to replace a traditional way of doing something, combustion engine with an electric engine, was proved to me that I was going to be able to convince people um, to to train with electronic weights instead of you know physical weights. Um, but I also called up uh, a guy named Mark Verstegen, um, who uh, is a or- former NFL coach and runs the largest NFL training center uh, in the country. And basically, people train for NFL Combine at his gym in Phoenix. Um, and I actually took my prototype, I put it on an airplane um, and I flew to Phoenix with it. And I showed it to him, I showed it to his team and I showed it to a bunch of athletes and every single one of them loved it, right? Uh, and so like, am I gonna be able to convince the world this is a thing? Yeah, absolutely. I, I just convinced like a bunch of NFL players this was a thing. And so you're, you're looking for like reasons to believe uh, because trust me, you're surrounded by people who who don't believe. Um, I have. I had a, I had a guy I have a guy from J.P. Morgan who called me up yesterday to apologize. He's like, "Ollie, sorry I didn't believe in you two years ago, <laughs> right?" Um, and, and now now they want to work with us. But but the point is like you know not everyone's going to believe even when like the product's real and you can physically touch it. It, it you know that's why we have this notion of there are early adopters and there are laggards. Like laggards are people who still use rotary phones because they don't believe you know in in touchstone and you know yeah even though like ninety percent of the world has it. Um, there's always going to be that that range, and so you're trying to assess like, does this person not believe because they're not an early adopter? Do they not believe because there's a there's a valid reason? And you know, and I say that as an entrepreneur, you want to have thick skin but not a thick head. Um, and and you're looking for and the difference is you're you're looking for that those those clues and those hints, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know yeah, if that helps. I helped answer yeah, the question. It is, it is interesting. It is it is interesting because there are a couple of different elements. There's like the persuasion part of it which is for the people that don't believe, what types of things can you say? What can you show them to then actually convert them to adopters of the product? And then there's the other part of it, which is just staying relentless and just continuing to hustle for more and more customers, more and more people to say yes, because at the end of the day, all you need is those yeses. The no's matter a little, but it's really, really important about those yeses. I want to go back to one thing you said in terms of the prototype. Like, How did you actually build this? Where were the parts from? Saw it on the website in terms of everything that went into the tonal machine, but yeah, curious to hear how you actually built the prototype. Well, I'm, I'm first of all, remember I'm an engineer. So, uh, so, so building, building prototypes is something I, I did for, you know, the first 15 years of my career. Uh, and so, you know, building the prototype for me was a lot about, you know, acquiring the parts. And it turns out if you're building something like this. Um, well, first of all, you're building something that's never been built before. And, and you're, you're buying, you're either buying parts and those are coming from websites, many, many websites all over the internet or you're buying things that aren't what you want, but you think you can modify to get what you want, right? Uh, and uh, and then you're just, you're iterating. And so like I built I built that first first prototype and it took, you know, took maybe like two weeks to get it assembled, but it didn't work. It took about three months to get it to sort of work. 
and that was that was proof that that digital weight could be a thing. Like it wasn't enough to be like I believe in digital weight, but it was like I this could be a thing. Uh, and the prototype went up as low as 25 pounds and as high as 40 pounds. And like to give you like the range of a tonal today is five to 200. And this thing was like just kind of in the middle and it didn't have very much, but, but it was enough to, for, for an engineer to look at it and say, yeah, I can see how you could keep like expanding the range all the way, like from five to, to 200. Um, and it was, it was probably about six months after, after that. So nine months into the journey before I had something that could go from like you know, five pounds to 150. Uh, and then we eventually got it all the way up to up to 200. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's, I mean, there's more, I mean, there's more juice, like there's no like upper end to how high you can, you can go. It just gets more and more expensive and, and impractical. Uh, but, but I had to, I had to iterate my way there and I had to learn, right. Like I'm an electrical engineer, um, but electromagnetics was something I studied in theory in college, theoretically. And so I was like dusting off textbooks. Right. Um, you know, you're buying books, you're, you're talking to experts. I actually ended up getting to one of the, the co-founders of Tesla, um, who specializes in electromagnetics. Electromagnetics is the theory. It's the theory that drives electric motors. Uh, and, and I, I had lunch with him and he like gave me a bunch of tips, <laughs> right? So, you, you know, you're trying to, you're trying to find people who've done it before, who can give you hints, you're dusting off textbooks. You're trying to learn on your own. You're just, you're trying to like get there one step at a time. Uh, and you just got to keep chipping away at it till you get it. Mm-hmm. So, so that's the mental model for an engineer, but for the non-engineers, should they hire someone to do this? If you weren't an engineer and you had to build this product, what would you do to gain buy-in and just build the prototype? Well, I, I mean, I made a really, I don't want to say I made a mistake, but I, there's one thing that was really, really challenging about what I did. I was a solo founder. Um, it turns out that's a really, really terrible idea. Uh, don't ever do it. I highly highly recommend um, that you have at least one co-founder, if not two. Um, and I highly recommend against you do trying to be a solo founder. Uh, it's, a, it's a really, really difficult thing. Um, and the only reason I was able to pull it off is because this was my second second go around, first time I had a co-founder of my, my last startup. Uh, and even then it was way harder than it should have been. And, uh, and I think it actually impacted the business in negative ways, right? So, um, because at the end of the day, what you learn being the CEO of a company, uh, especially one that's the size of Tonal or a few hundred employees is, um, you know, it's all about the team that you have, right? I, I joke, I joke with people. I'm like, I don't do anything. Um, you guys do everything. I literally, I do nothing. I'm just responsible for everything, but I don't actually do anything. I'm just responsible for it all. Um, and so, you know, you want to make sure that your founding team has all the skills that you need. If your product's highly technical, um, it's probably a really, really good idea to make sure you have you have someone who's technical as a as a co-founder of your business. Um, if your product, if your if your business is really, really heavy on consumer marketing, you probably want to make sure you have someone on a founding team who knows a thing or two about about consumer marketing. Um, and if not, then you you need to go find someone and hire them and figure out how you're going to pay them, even though you don't have money. All right, that's that's the hardest part about this is you're trying to get this thing off the ground. And it's like a chicken and the egg. If you don't have the money, then you don't have the team. If they're working for free, then they're probably co-founders. And so that, that's that's what you're trying to solve is like, how am I going to get the resources, the people, uh, resources being money, equipment, and then the people to, to pull this off. Uh, and having a strong founding team is by far um, my biggest recommendation. Mm-hmm. I know. I know for me, when I was building my first company, the co-founder was the first thing that I thought about. 
because it was like, oh, I, I can't do this alone, not the technical guy, more of the marketing strategy. So like, well, if I'm going to build something that uses AI and I, and, and, and I don't know too much about the technology, then I need to go out and find someone. So I'm curious, like, what types of characteristics would you look for in those co-founders if you were to go back and start reaching out to different people to help you build Tonal? Um, I mean, I, I would look, I would look for two things, right? So, so the first one is, is there's just a general set of entrepreneurial traits that you want, right? Um, you want people who are, who are mentally strong, who are resilient, who are scrappy, um, who have grit, right? Cause it's, it's hard. It's one of the hardest things you'll, you'll ever do. Right. Um, and so you, you, you definitely want that. You want someone who has thick skin, um, and you don't want someone who has a thick head, right? So. Um, a lot of times people have, they, they appear to have thick skin because they're just really stubborn. And it turns out being really stubborn, uh, isn't, isn't, isn't a good thing in a startup. You're constantly readjusting, right? You're constantly rerouting. And so you got to have that agility to, to constantly be able to, you know, change course and course adjust, um, but not, not have that wear you down emotionally. So you, you, you need that thick skin. So you're, you're looking for all of those characteristics. You're looking for someone who's creative, someone who's going to figure it out. Um, someone who's good at, at, at the art of self-study or learning things on your own without very much support. Um, and that's stuff that you want in a, in a co-founder. Um, the other thing that you want in a co-founder is someone who has strengths where you have weaknesses. Uh, and it could be, that could be in, in skill sets, like I'm weak at technology and I want them to be strong at technology. Um, but it could also be, it can also be in, in temperament, right? Like um, maybe, maybe uh, I'm an introvert and I need, I need an extroverted co-founder. Maybe I'm, you know, there's a, a million characteristics that you can list off, but, but you think about building a team where the team is well-rounded because every person is not right. And so, you know, know yourself, know your strengths, know your weaknesses and, and know what you want to cover, cover with your co-founder. Believe it or not, that, that rule doesn't change. I mean, once you're building a leadership team, you're looking for the same thing. Once you build every team, you're looking to, to balance people out, you know, it's no different than a basketball team or a soccer team. Um, you need people who, who can bring different, different things to the table. Um, the last thing I'm going to tell you, you absolutely need to make sure that they have, and this is one I would never compromise on is optimism. Um, startups, um, you will have some really, really, um, low lows, <laughs> uh, where it feels like the world is imploding around you. Uh, and you gotta be able to look up and believe that, that you're going to get past it. Um, because, and that just takes optimism. Right. That's just how hard it is. I love it. Love it. All about self-awareness. I know I've done the exercises, actually just had the opportunity to just sit down and just write like who who is Zain Patel? What does Zane Patel need around him? What type of people, what type of characteristics does he have? Do you do a lot of self-awareness exercises? I, I guess did you do them before you started looking for your chief marketing officer, your your CTO, your COO, or was it just you already internally knew what you wanted and now it was just about seeking those characteristics? No, totally. Let me, before I answer your question, let me ask you this. Have you done like personality tests? Like, have you done Myers-Briggs or Big Five? Yeah, yeah I, have, I have. You yeah. have? Okay, cool. So, so the answer is, is yes. I've, I've, I've done a lot of this stuff. And, and before I started Tonal, I had already done a bunch of personality tests like Myers-Briggs and, you know, Big Five. Um, but, but even after starting Tonal, um, you know, I have, I'm in two different executive coaching. I have a, I have an executive coach and I'm in a CEO coaching program. Uh, and both of those obviously relate a lot to, to psychology and, and self-awareness. Um, and I've also taken personality tests um, as a CEO and I make everyone on my team take those tests and we have to sit down and compare notes. 
Uh, and so we, we literally do an annual offsite where we sit down and go through each other's personalities um, on these on these reports. It's called a, this one. The particular one that we use at work is called a Hogan assessment. Um, and uh, and it's really great because it, it really focuses on a lot of the personality traits that that come out at work. Um, you know, who's better at thinking about money? Who's more excitable? Who's more innovative? Who's more creative? Uh, and, and so when you have a, a tough problem that needs to be solved, you kind of know where where to go. Right. Is it is it a financial problem? Do you need someone who's more commercially minded? Is it one that can take some creative thinking and innovation? Um, you know, who's you know, if if the person who's least innovative is saying no to a really creative idea uh, on day one, you can probably like bank on like maybe by day seven, they're going to come around. Right. Uh, and so, you know, the, these things are are really um, are really helpful for sure. And it's it's something I think everyone owes to themselves. Uh, and by the way, to your families and your friends and everyone that you love, like the better you know yourself, the better you're going to be able to, to treat everyone around you, right? And the more successful you'll be in life. I love it. I can actually picture like half of the Tonal team just sitting offsite right now and you're thinking about a problem and then you just point at someone. You're like, I need you to answer this because of your personality type. So I love it. I think like one of the things that came off of that from my side is like, what have you learned about people that most people don't know? So the personality tests are one thing, but throughout working with so many different people and just your your long tenure as someone who's technical, as someone who's a founder, what do people not know about people? Um, I mean, I think it's it's a it's a really really broad question you're asking, Zane. But I would tell you I would tell you this that um, you know as a company is growing, uh, your job is changing every day. Right, it, it's becoming it's becoming more demanding, and you're having to shift the way you you operate. Uh, I want you to think about something. Um, when we were a four person team, um, I could spend half an hour with someone, and the scope of the conversation I might have with them, or the scope of the one page email I might send them, might constitute them going off and doing one or two days worth of work. Right. Um, today, I could sit down in half an hour, you know, write a one page, a one pager is what we call them, like a one page summary of what needs to be done in half an hour to, you know, explain it to a team of 25 people. And that goes in and results in like 10 uh, person years worth of work and several million dollars of spend of leverage off off of 30 minutes, right? Uh, that's a very, very different job, right? In a, in a way. Uh, and, and you go from telling people like what needs to be done to like how you want it to work to like why it's important and they got to figure out the how and the, and, and you know, and the what. Um, and, and, and what I found along the way is, you know, is the people who keep scaling with the company um, versus the people who like hit a ceiling and then you need to go find, you know, new people to help you scale. And those people who were with you before, they don't necessarily leave the company, they just shift into other roles. Um, it almost always comes down to self-awareness. Um, but here's the thing that, that I think a lot of people don't realize. It's not self-awareness of what your characteristics are, or your personality traits are. It's awareness of what you don't know, right? Um, and so I've never, um, I've never had to, to pull someone out of a role that they were in uh, because they were doing something incorrectly. I've had to pull people out of roles they were in because there was a list of 10 things that they weren't doing and they didn't even know they needed to start doing them at that phase of the company. Right. Does that make sense? So if you're constantly on, if you are constantly on the lookout, you know, for what you don't know, which is often called the beginner's mindset, that's what Jeff Bezos calls it. And you're constantly looking to learn the things that are, that are coming up. Um, then, then you can stay ahead of the curve and you can, you can grow. 
Um, I have an executive where we were having a con- I was having a conversation with him about something, and he he came he came with with a result of something, and I'm like, this is this is an incredible result. Um, the truth is, we actually needed you to produce this six months ago, uh, and we didn't even no one even knew that we needed you to do this six months ago. But now that we know that you came up with something amazing, but you did it six months late, six months from now. What are you going to be? What are you going to learn six months ago from now that you wish you would have done six months ago? Uh, go answer that question and go start working on that immediately, <laughs> right? Um, and 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 I think that that's a really really important approach, right? Is is trying to figure out what you don't know, what you're missing, uh, and and that takes humility and it takes you know it takes you know research and talking to people who've done it before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like. Two, two main points that I think that, I, that I'm pulling out from that. Number one is just seeking understanding, not just about the greater context, I guess, in terms of tonal, but also understanding yourself a bit more. So what, what are you double clicking on in terms of the personality test, in terms of just past things that you've done? That way you can really have one holistic shape of who you are. And then second thing is just continuing to ask questions. Like I love the six month example, because I, I think it is incredibly important to, to do the postmortems, to do the reflections, and then also do the prospectives and ask people what types of things they would do differently after they are armed with this new information or other things that they would do there. And I think that all comes down to culture, right? And the type of thing that you build in the company, the transparency, the authenticity. And so for you, like what does culture mean to you? And then how do you ensure that this culture is maintained throughout the company and every new hire, every person brought into the team knows exactly what the expectations are from the top down? Uh, fair point. Just on the on the last one, I would just, if I had to like reiterate it in a phrase, like I think we talk about known knowns, known unknowns, right? Things that you know, you know, and things that you know that you don't know, right? There's this other category called unknown unknowns, and that's what bites people, right? Um, and is go searching for the unknown unknowns is, is kind of, I think I would say the key takeaway from, from the last point, um, in terms of, in terms of culture, um, you know, I'd say a, you gotta be intentional about your culture. Don't, don't just let it form organically, like decide the culture that you need, the culture that you want, um, and then go, go make it, make it happen, right? You're leading the team and you get to define, define the culture with them, of course, but you get to define the culture, um, and and there's no there's no such thing as the there's no such thing as a good culture or a bad culture. I want to be clear about that. Um, there is such a thing as the right culture and the wrong culture for what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, I'll give you a really extreme example, but if Tonal adopted the same culture as the Navy SEALs, uh, it would probably be a really terrible place to work, right? Uh, and if the Navy SEALs adopted the same culture of Tonal, they'd probably die. They would literally die. They would literally get shot and die. Um, they need the culture that they have in order to stay alive because that's the, the that's that's what their job demands, right? And so so you got to think of it as like what is the right culture for for us to be successful as an as an organization and as a team and on our mission, um, and and to accomplish our vision. And once you figured out what that is, then then you go you go instill it into people. Um, you write it on the walls uh, of the building so that you know you you put it in your emails. You hire people, you interview for it when you're hiring people and when you're giving people performance reviews and you're deciding who gets a big raise and who gets a small raise and who gets no raise, you're looking at how well they're adhering to the culture and you're telling them when they're not adhering to the culture. Um, you know, you, you make it a part of who you are and you actually respect it, right? But you got to start by knowing what it is and like so well that you could write it on the walls, right? 
Uh, a lot of times people view culture as like, it's like squishy amorphous thing and like, oh, it's a feel good thing. It's, it's not, it's not like that at all. Mm-hmm. Love it. Love it. And I know, I know you mentioned towards the beginning, like in it, innovation and creativity with the purpose. Those are two principles of tonal. Can you just give some more concrete examples of what the culture of tonal actually is and, and how you foster that within the company? We have, we have three things in our culture. Um, first one is creativity and innovation. So that's like the first, the first pillar. Um, the, the second pillar is one team, one mission, right? Um, one of the challenges at Tonal is we do a lot of different things. Uh, it's, a ver- it's a vertically integrated business is, is the term for it. And it means we're, do- we're doing a lot um, from like, you know, manufacturing something in Asia to installing it on your wall in your home to like filming fitness content in a studio in Hollywood. Like, like that's a lot of things to be doing. And a lot of companies just do a little sliver of that. And so we got to make sure we're always writing, we're always, you know, acting as one team. Um, whether you're in Taiwan or Toronto or Hollywood or San Francisco, you're all on one team and you're all on the same mission, right? We're not on different missions, right? Uh, so that's the second second pillar. Uh, the third one we just call it good people, right? Um, and you know, and that really is 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 the code, the set of kind of code of conduct conduct that we have in terms of how we operate as a team, how we treat one another. Um, you know, examples are assume good intentions, no politics, no personal agendas. Uh, and that that really has to do with being able to attract the best people in the world because great people want to work with other other great people. Um, and is also important because, you know, going back to that concept of one team, uh, when you have a lot of different different groups of people all over the world, it's really easy to start not trusting each other. Like, you know, you hear it all the time. It's how politics start like, oh, those those people in Toronto, they blah, blah, blah. You know, and, and that's not acceptable at Tonal. Like, I don't stand for it. Makes sense. Makes sense. And I know for me, like one of the things that I started to foster, I guess, more more within TKS in terms of of our teams was really just making sure that transparency was key and everyone, all ends of communication were open at the same time. And then I think the second thing was in terms of intentions, really understanding what the why is behind everything. So I know you mentioned that. So so yeah, again, just really understanding the purpose because there's, there's no point taking action without understanding the why like if you don't understand it then why are you doing it and so i think that's another big thing there and then i love right. the i love the dichotomy just between like creativity and then innovation and, and what that looks like and especially once you combine that with having a purpose so again bringing in more intentions about why you're doing types of things with creativity and with innovation as well so had had a couple more questions here like one of the other ones was i'm currently playing the game of just making the people around me better and so especially when we go into like some of our, of our teams for TKS, I'm always thinking about how can I just elevate the people around me? And so from your standpoint, as the CEO of the company, how do you build and then develop the talent to make sure that everyone is at their very best and 100% all the time? Well, I mean, it, it, it really depends on a lot of different things. And so there's, um, there's a principle that we use called situational management. Uh, and it basically says you can't manage everyone the same way um, uh, all the time, right? That that you got to actually adapt your ad- adapt your management style depending on both the situation and the person, right? The circumstances and the person. Uh, and so the, the first thing is being aware of you know who who you're dealing with, um, you know why they may may be behaving a certain way or doing a certain thing or thinking of, of something a certain way, um, and also the circumstances uh, that that they're operating under. And so I I, I would say that that you know, you can almost summarize that as empathy, right? If you can start from a place of empathy and you understand 
um, you know, the people around you and you can start from who they are, what situation they're in. Um, you can understand why they may be, you know, maybe thinking of something a certain way um, or behaving in a certain way. And if you know that, that, that that's not going to cut it, that's not going to meet um, the needs and you need them to like elevate um, to start thinking about a problem differently or, or more broadly or, or in a different way to go acquire a skill set and you have that empathy of where they're coming from, then you can begin to fill those gaps, right? Um, and so I, I'd say that's the, the first and most most important thing. Um, but the other one is just just to like hold hold a really, really high bar, right? Uh, I can't um, I can't do that for everyone, right? I don't have, I, there isn't like, there's too many people and physically not enough time. And so um, you, what you find is that when you, when you create a culture with, with a high bar, uh, people start doing that for each other, right? Uh, and it's one thing for your boss, you know, to tell you to like, you know, do do, do better or, or change this. It's another one. It's a peer of yours, right? It, it doesn't it doesn't sound sound quite the same. It's like, you know, imagine like you're in school and like you know your professor is like or your teacher is like lashing out at you. But imagine like you know your buddy who sits right next to you is like, hey, have you thought about this or can we, you know, you want to try that again? Or it's it's a different it's a different thing. And so as, as you start to instill that into the culture, um, it just become, becomes becomes a culture of, you know, of, of continuous improvement. Uh, and, you know, we've, we've raised the bar higher um, on, on everything from our product to our culture. We've actually bought books and distributed them to the team. Uh, we've tried all sorts of things and, and it's just, it's, you kind of learn how to do it, but it becomes, it becomes part of the culture after a while. Uh, and I think that's, that's important. Um, one of the things I didn't tell you about culture, Zane, is you can think of culture as like the standards, right, that you, that you set for your team, but a big part of culture eventually becomes habit, right? It's just the habits of the organization. Uh, and you'll find that like certain organizations respond to certain things in certain ways. Um, and so I'll, I'll just give you, I'll give you an example. Um, someone at Nike told me, um, no meeting at Nike starts without a video. Like, if you're having a big meeting, you go film a video and edit it because you kick off every meeting with a video. And I'm pretty sure there is nowhere in, in, in writing anywhere at Nike that says you have to start meetings with video, but it's just a habit that's formed in that in that organization. Right? So, so I think there's also a habit of like drive, holding people accountable, asking them to do better, um, and 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 having empathy for why people people may not be, and then helping to kind of pull them up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it just becomes contagious, right? Like how totally. you do one thing is how you that's do everything. So if, if you're doing, if you're doing everything right, if you're always at high standards and people have the opportunity to see that as well, but then like you said, just from a peer to peer relationship standpoint, one person's going extremely hard on a proposal, then ultimately the other person is going to want to go as equally as hard, just because that's the nature of, of internal competition, especially from an organizational standpoint. And so love that yeah. in terms of what that looks like on the inside. Yeah. And just, just to give you an example, just to kind of like maybe lend the point, um, you know, a few weeks ago, uh, the NCAA women's tournament, um, you know, there's a, there's a tweet and a photo that emerged that they had a really, really terrible, like gym, like their weight room was completely inadequate. And it's like a photo of the women's gym and a photo of the men's gym. And the men's gym was like all decked out. And then the women's gym was just like the most sorry thing you've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Um, and within that photo going, going live on Twitter and making the rounds within an hour, Tonal had put out a tweet, uh, saying, um, we're shipping you 10 tonals. They're going to arrive tomorrow. Um, by that afternoon, they were on an airplane, you know, making their way to San Antonio. Um, and the thing that's most interesting about that is no one ever had to ask me permission. Like no one's ever like, Hey, Ali, is it okay if we donate 10 tonals to the NCAA? Like they just did it. 
right? Um, and they never needed permission because it, it was, it's built into our culture and who we are and the way we engage with the world and people just know what's right, right? And, and that's, that's just an example of, um, of culture, right, in action. I love it. I love it. All fostered by, by you and the rest of your team. One last question I had for you was just about initiatives and what looks what the future looks like for you. So really curious to understand what the most critical initiative you're working on right now and then how you plan on achieving that. <laughs> uh, you know, so so it's funny. I mean, growth. <laughs> uh, we are um, we are growing so rapidly just in terms of demand. Uh, that growing to fulfill that demand is is the single most important uh, initiative. Uh, we meet, we start out our mornings with an executive team meeting, uh, reviewing how we're doing on hiring people. Uh, and then from there, we walk into another meeting where we're reviewing how we're doing at manufacturing more tunnels and shipping them. Uh, just because the demand that we have for our products outstripped our, our capacity. Uh, to, to manufacture and ship units. And we've been in this situation for about nine months now. And every time we double demand, uh, every time we double production, demand also seems to double. So we, we haven't been able to close close the gap yet. We think we're going to close it by July or, or August, but but it's, you know, that that is the single most important um, important initiative. Um, it's just growing growing the team, growing production, growing deliveries, growing all, all of that stuff and, and, and getting it to work to work well. And it turns out that every time you double, it presents it presents new challenges that weren't weren't there before. Um, things that happen rarely happen twice as often. <laughs> and and once you've multiplied something rare by two and then by two again and by two again, they come become not so rare. Right. And and then you have to start actually building processes and systems and stuff to 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 deal with with all of that sort of stuff. Uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing is um, is planning. Um, we have until uh, until our July board meeting to put together a three year plan, and we do this every year, uh, and then we present that to our board of directors. Uh, and planning is just the most incredible thing. You cannot take a startup day by day. It's it's too. You know, once you have an organization of hundreds of people, word travels slowly. Um, and in uh, in good organizations, bad news travels fast, and good news travels slow. Um, bad organizations is the opposite. Good news travels fast. Everyone's like gloating about all the good stuff. And then bad news doesn't travel at all. It gets hidden. You actually want the opposite. You want bad news to travel fast so you can respond to it. And then, you know, good news can can travel at a, at a more normal pace. Um, but but because information travels more slowly in large organizations, you've got to plan ahead. You can't like take it day by day. You can't iterate your way to success. And so like we're, we're our planning cycle now is about three years out. Um, a company the size of like Intel uh, their planning cycles 20 years out, just to give you a sense. So there, there comes a, while, a point where like your horizon gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, but we're at about a three year right now and we got to get that done by July. And that's that's a big, big, massive effort. It takes the whole company. Perfect, I love it. So many different learnings from, from my side and I'm sure that the audience has learned a lot too. So lots around long-term planning, how you be intentional by your co-founders. Again, thank you so, so much for all of your answers. Gonna turn it over to the audience in case anyone has any questions. I'm gonna go ahead and mute myself and then anyone in the audience can go ahead and then uh, ask their question. Go on, and Zane, awesome awesome to have you have you kind of interview the first first half of the session. Um, I can see your passion for this and, and just incredible, incredible to meet you and, and everyone else. I'm excited for more questions. Thank you, Ali, again, thank you. Awesome, I guess I'll kick it off. 
Uh, hey, Ali, just wanted to thank you again uh, for coming out. I know we've all learned a ton. Uh, just a quick about my, just a bit about myself. I'm Ishan. I'm 16. And right now, me and a few friends are working on building an economically sustainable model that stops open defecation in Nigeria, basically by repurposing feces into charcoal, urine into ammonium sulfate, selling it back to customers in Nigeria and giving it back to the users of our toilets. Um, my question for you is, can you share a story from a time where you made the wrong decision about the allocation of your resources? Uh, like for example, put it into marketing instead of product development or anything like that. Oh, uh, yeah, that happens all the time. Um, you, you know, it, it's, it's interesting at the end of the day, like not all your decisions are going to be good decisions. Uh, and you just have to plan for it. You have to plan for a certain, a certain percentage of, you know, of your decisions will be poor and that's going to result in a certain amount of your resources being misallocated, your time being misallocated. Um, there was a, there's a point where I, you know, I kept score. Um, at some point I, I lost both the time and the visibility to do it, but, but I would say that, you know, during the year 2017, when I was keeping score, um, about 20% of our dollars were being wasted on, on things that just didn't yield, you know, didn't yield results. Um, you know, you get to the company, a company the size of Apple, um, and I don't know the official stat, but I've heard, I've heard that 80% of their hardware uh, products never ship. They never see the light of day. They develop things and and before they and as and at some point during their life cycle they're like nope this is not going to make it this isn't going to hit our standard this is, and they kill the project right um and so you you just have to it's just a part of a part of life and a part of scaling scaling the business now look when you're when you're in the really really early days and resources are really really precious uh you gotta you know you, you gotta think long and hard and debate these things with with other people um, and get advice from people who've done it before. Um, and, you know, ask yourself, what if I'm wrong? Like, what are the consequences of being wrong about this? Um, and understand which decisions really matter and which decisions don't. Awesome. Thank you. Um, hi, Ali. My name's Mira. I'm uh, also from TKS Innovate. I'm currently working on using um, Mendelian randomization to build a database of leukemia stem cell genetic variants that researchers can use. Um, but my question is, in the early stages of when you were building Tonal the, um, and your startup, what were some challenges that you faced besides um, the co-founder? Uh, the, big, the biggest one was, was money. So, you know, I, I think for a lot of people who do software startups, um, not having money just means you got to eat ramen for longer. <laughs> Right. I mean, you're you're right. You're you're developing the software and you're you're coding it up. And uh, if you don't have money, it just it's just harder on you personally. But but you can keep making progress. Right. The problem with hardware companies is they actually consume a lot of money. Uh, you're making prototypes. You're you're you know you're doing and, and so raising money in the early days was hard because it was hard to get investors to believe. Right. Uh, and and I would say that for the first two and a half years of Tonal, it was a process of continuous fundraising, right? Um, and and you, you'd, you'd fundraise a little and then you'd make a little progress and you'd fundraise some more and you'd make a little progress and, and you were just continuously fundraising. Uh, and uh, and that, that was probably, I'd say the biggest threat to the existence of Tonal for the first, you know, first two, two years uh, until we raised what was, what we call our series A funding, which is an $11 million round. Um, and that was when we were actually able to really hire a team. We hired about 30 people off that money. Uh, and that's when I, we really started to pick up, pick up momentum. But the early days, 
uh, it was beg, borrow, and steal your way uh, into making prototypes. Kind of follow up to that. Have, did you guys ever um, consider entering a startup accelerator like Y Combinator or anything like that? Um, we did. Uh, and I talked to YC and they said no. I talked to StartX. They said no. Um, so, so and, and, and I think the thing I, I realized, by the way, and this is important, uh, is a lot of these accelerators have a formula that works. Uh, and what they're really doing is they're trying to figure out Will your will our formula work for this company, and and do we believe in in this founding team? Um, and YC for me, um, number one, I didn't have a co-founder, and and you know that that was a big a big thing for them. Uh, but the second thing with YC is their formula does not work well for hardware. Uh, and and I later like sat down with like the COO of YC a few years later, and we talked about it. And he's like, oh yeah yeah, we know that <laughs> it doesn't work really well for like the type of hardware company that you're you were building. Um, and so they're, they're, you know, yes, I considered it, but I think the lesson I, I would give you in retrospect um, is you got to find the the right type of accelerator program for, for what you're trying to do. Uh, and there are hardware accelerator programs out there. And if you're building hardware or there are ones for biotech, if you're building biotech, you got to find the right one. And yes, they can be really helpful. Um, they can also be a big, a big sham. And there's a lot of them out there that are shams. And so you got to reference check, find someone who's been through it and swears by it and can explain to you tangibly what value they actually added, right? Um, like literally be like, if you didn't go into the accelerator, what would have happened? And like, oh, we would have we would have been successful. It just would have taken an extra like three months. Not worth it, right? Because those accelerator programs are not cheap. Very true, thank you so much. Hey Ali, I'm Shannon. I'm a, I'm a 17 year old blockchain engineer and I'm currently working on um, basically a solution to provide uh, creators in the economy with a means of like liquidating coins that people buy so then you know, the, people can support the creators. Um, and I have a question for you re regarding kind of um, your point about bad news travels fast. So um, can you tell me like an experience where you like really had a struggle and really had to think hard about like which bad news to prioritize? Maybe you um, you know, even happen to prioritize the wrong thing and you had to shift focus um, and kind of your biggest takeaway from that. Um, I, so, so I think the, prem, the premise of your question, uh, I'm going to challenge a little bit, I'm sorry, but, but I think, I think the, the thing about bad news traveling fast is you don't want people filtering bad news, right? And so if you're beginning to prioritize, like set priorities for like what bad news gets to travel fast and what get, then you're basically saying, you know, people get to filter out how, how bad news kind of disseminates through the organization. Um, and, and I think people can do that with good news. They can decide, like, okay, am I going to deliver this good news in an email? Am I going to deliver it at a team meeting? Am I going to deliver it at an all hands presentation? Whereas when something bad happens, um, that information needs to travel fast. So anyone who needs to react can react. Right. And so just to give you an example, like, let's say we have a customer escalation, right? Um, I'll often hear about the customer escalation. Uh, and then when I go to follow up on it, um, I'll say, hey, what, you know, what's, what's the status of this? What happened? Uh, they'll be like, oh, we resolved it, right? And that's an example of like the bad news that something went wrong with a customer traveled fast. The good news that they fixed it didn't, right? Um, and that's what you want, right? You, you, you basically want to make sure everyone's aware of everything that's, that's breaking. Um, if you're curious, there's something called the Anden, uh, Anden Cord, which was invented by Toyota. Uh, and the way this thing works is it's literally this like cord that runs up and down the entire manufacturing line. 
And if anyone anywhere in the factory sees something wrong, they pull on the cord and it stops the entire manufacturing line uh, until that thing is resolved. And then the manufacturing line can resume. Um, this cord is pulled dozens of times per day. Like it's being pulled constantly. Sometimes for just, you know, sometimes the line stops for just 10, 15, 20 seconds. But the point is the faster we can find out that something went wrong, the faster we can fix it and carry on, right? Uh, and that's, that's an example of bad news traveling fast. Everyone on the entire line knows that something went wrong somewhere uh, when someone yanks on that cord. Cool, thank you. And sure. I really appreciate it. Rebecca, Elizabeth, you wanna unmute and then give, give a quick intro and then ask a question. Yeah, hi, so I'm Elizabeth. I'm currently working on a very different field. I'm working on like breast milk replication so super, super different from our conversation, but I think mm -hmm. a lot of the things that I can, I think everybody can apply to their life. So this might be a super open-ended question and I understand that. So if you don't have a direct answer, that's also okay. But you mentioned like decision-making and a lot of ambiguity. And I'm, I've been reading a lot of books on like intuition, building your intuition to know, um, like quickly know what decision to make with limited amounts of information. And um, everybody that I've asked similar questions to just says like, it takes time and you just have to build it. Like it's, you just, um, your brain like just picks up on the patterns and then eventually you learn. Do you think there's any other way that you could build up your intuition and like decision-making without just making bunches and bunches of decisions over time? Yeah, absolutely. So, so what you're talking about is, I mean, books like Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, um, Blink, our books are kind of cover the subject matter. Uh, the, the answer, um, the answer to your, your question is you surround yourself with advisors. So you surround yourself with people, um, who have seen what, what, you know, you, you ask yourself, well, how'd you get intuition? Well, you, you, you have a certain set of experiences. Well, if you don't have those experiences and you surround yourself with people who've had those experiences, oftentimes advisors, uh, and you, you tap them for, uh, for their wisdom, right? Um, right before, uh, I got on the phone with you, um, I called up one of my, my board members who was on my board of directors. Um, he sat on the board. He's, he's been on the board of about a dozen different public companies. He was the CFO of, pub, of a public company uh, that built hardware. And I literally just called him up out of the blue and I said, hey, I have a crazy idea. Uh, and I explained to him what I was talking about. He's like, I'll leave. That's not crazy at all, right? My intuition was that was crazy, but he's like, nope, actually I've seen that before. And this is how it could work out. And these are the pitfalls, right? Uh, and at the end of the day, you know, they're, you know, one of the things that makes you so good as an entrepreneur is you're willing to walk an unknown path forward. But in order to walk an unknown path, you need to draw on all the experiences, the intuition, the knowledge of people who've walked other paths. And if you surround yourself with those people, that's how you can make up for that intuition gap, which is what you're referring to. I don't know if that's helpful. Um, now, do you still um, go to other people sometimes when you have ambiguity or is all of your decisions, are they all just you? Oh, no, I, I go to people all the time. Uh, like I, at the end of the day, you know, it becomes my call. Um, but I'm using my intuition and the intuition of everyone around me. Sometimes I'm pulling intuition from my executives. Sometimes I'm calling advisors. Sometimes I'm calling CEOs of other companies and saying, hey, I'm in this situation. And they're like, oh, yeah, 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 I, I, I was there. Right. Uh, and so you, absolutely all the time. It never it never gets better. You know, you're always going to be in the situation, just at different levels of scale. So you don't think it's ever like you, you for the rest of your life will um, be making decisions with with the expertise and intuition of other people as well. Well, unless unless I stop pushing the envelope, right? 
like at some at some point, like you end up getting a lifestyle business, and like I might decide that you know for retirement I'm gonna go do something super easy. Super easy means one that I could do with my eyes closed, and like I'm not I'm not pushing the envelope on anything. Um, but then you're 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 scaling back your ambition, right? And and you can do that. You have the everyone has the option of scaling back their ambition, um, but it's your choice, right? Are you gonna go push the envelope, or are you gonna do something that's squarely in your comfort and your experience zone? Right. Okay, cool. That was helpful. Thank you so much. Yeah. I mean, you can start an ice cream shop and, and by the 10th one, be like a total expert at ice cream shops and do that for the rest of your life. But uh, you're not doing that. You're inventing milk, right? <laughs> Ali, I want to be cognizant of your time now that, that we've got three minutes until five o'clock. Do we have time for the next three questions or should we wrap up with this one? Um, I do have to wrap up at two o'clock because I have, I have a child and we got to do a handoff. Um, okay. So okay, but I, I, could, I can take one more question if that's if you want. Perfect, perfect, yeah. Charlotte, you can finish. Thanks, um, hi, I'm Charlotte. I'm an 18 year old um, high school student from Boston. And my current project is looking into uh, nanotechnology and cancer treatment. Um, so definitely uh, a bit different than what Tonal does, but um, I think, you know, they're both, both are revolutionary in a similar way. Um, and you know, on that on that like moonshot moonshot subject, um, like being a leader in your field, you obviously have a lot of expectations um, for your company, and I'm sure you face a lot of external expectations um, and a lot of hard decisions, um, like what Elizabeth was asking about. Um, so, I'd love to know uh, about any projects or initiatives um, that you felt particularly passionate about, but you've had to kill for one reason or another and like what the learning process was like. There are like, there's a massive list of things that I thought we would have done by now. Um, and, and it turns out that, you know, focusing on the main thing uh, is so, so, so much more powerful uh, because you can, you can keep adding momentum. It's kind of like, imagine you're like, you know, trying to, spin a flywheel and you keep spinning the main flywheel faster and faster and faster. But if you're trying to spin like 10 different flywheels and you can never get any of them spinning fast enough, uh, maybe that's a bad analogy, but, but what ends up happening is you, you quickly realize like, okay, if I just like put this one on the back burner, if I cancel this, if I just wait a little longer on this, I can keep making more and more momentum here. And eventually that momentum gives you, I'll call it the, the resources and the right to go do other things. Um, and so that's, this is a question of, of focus. Uh, and they, they say that, that as CEO, the hardest decisions you have to make are choosing what you have to say no to. Uh, and, uh, and it's actually gotten to the point where I'm now saying no to my board. They're like, Ali, why haven't you done that? I'm like, no, <laughs> we're doing that next year. We're not doing that this year. And, and yeah, discipline is just so, so important because otherwise, you know, you can spread yourself too thin and end up accomplishing nothing. It's kind of like, you know, if you're cooking a meal, do you want to have a good main dish or do you want to have like 50 really bad side dishes? Love it. Love ending with the priorities. Thank you again, Ali, so, so much. Everyone here is super grateful for your time and huge shouts again to Amna for setting this up. Ali, thank you for dedicating 60, 60 minutes to all of us. And I hope that the, the, the audience enjoyed it as much as I did. You're, you're welcome. This was absolutely incredible. I, I will tell you, um, I pretty, pretty regularly meet with entrepreneurs um, who, who just want help with their businesses. 
Um, and oftentimes um, I don't get questions this insightful. So, um, so you guys are all incredible, all of you. And I'm, I'm so inspired to meet you all. Uh, and I can't wait to see what you all do. Uh, and happy to help in any way as you, you all go on your respective journeys. Thank you 